Joining the show today is Ken Smithmeyer. Ken is a judgment expert for P3 Insights. He's done a lot of work, and most recently with Coach Nick Saban. Ken, thank you for coming on. How are you today? Thanks, Dan. Good to be with you. Well, thank you for coming on. Of course, we're right in the middle of the college football season or the regular season. It's going to be over before you know it. We're about to hit November. And, of course, Alabama just defeated Tennessee 52-24. to And like I mentioned, you have done work with Coach Saban previously. Just kind of talk about that. And how, how much longer do you think Coach Saban can coach at a high level that he is right now? Yeah, so, Dan, let me tell you a story that I will be interesting to you and I think to your listeners that illuminates something about Coach Saban. Um, back in uh, 2017, when Saban fired Kiffin the week before the national championship, I wrote a column in the National Business Journal about it. The headline was, did Saban make a judgment error? So no big deal, you know. But anyway, a few weeks after it was published, I thought, what the heck? I printed out a copy of the article. I put together some materials about what I do. I put them in an envelope, and I mailed them to Saban. Now, I've done this before. I did it with Ole Miss when Hugh Freeze blew up. I did it with Baylor. Uh, I did it with Tennessee, Butch Jones. You know. But one day then, a few weeks after that, I'm sitting in the parking lot of a client up in Illinois, and my phone rings. I look at it. It says Tuscaloosa. <laughs> and I thought, no way. I pick up the phone, and it's this guy named Scott Cochran, who I'd never met before. I didn't even know his name. He said this, Coach gave me your materials and told me to call you and see if what you do can help improve our football team. All right, so the the one guy in the United States that probably doesn't need a damn thing from me was the one guy out of all the schools that I wrote all these letters to that had one of his staff people call me to learn what I do. And that is so revealing about Saban. And so then I, um, I wound up getting hired by them. It took me a year of building relationships down there with Cochran and Jeff Allen and, um, you know, Ellis Ponder, the director of football operations, a lot of people. Uh, and, and so then I got hired by them the following year and wound up working with, with Saban, with a good number of the coaches. I reconnected with Michael Oxley who I knew from a long time ago at Illinois. And um, so to your, your question about Saban, then I would, I would now fast forward to last year, the national championship. I told Saban one time that um, it seemed to me like he hated losing more than he enjoyed winning. Um, You know, and he never allowed himself much chance to kind of revel in a national championship when he, when he won it. At least that was my perception as an outsider. But I thought last year, that team, when they won, he was gleeful. I, I thought he was just genuinely happy the way any of us would think we might be in such a circumstance. And I think it's a combination of things. You know, he had that hip replacement a couple of years ago. He had COVID last year removed him from the team and just the whole COVID experience and the struggle to, to get on the field, I think made him maybe value what he has even more. And so I think right now he is in this wonderful position where he loves what he does. He's good at what he does. 
people enjoy what he does or maybe not the Bama haters enjoy it. He makes a great living at what he does and he's never going to retire until he either gets sick or dies because there would be no replacement for the psychological high that comes from what he's doing right now. And he's so engaged. So, you know, he's 70 or about to turn 70. And at that age, you know, and I know I'm going to be 67 next month. He's not much older than me. Um, you know, the health, the health problem can come along anytime or it might not come along for 10 years, but I don't think he's stepping out of the saddle. Uh, as long as he is healthy. Well, you, you mentioned quite a few names there, and we'll get to all of those throughout this podcast, but you, you did mention Butch Jones. Obviously, Butch, head coach at Tennessee, then went to work for Saban. Of course, he's the head coach at Arkansas State now. Jeremy Pruitt replaces Butch as head coach, and he has since been relieved of his duties, and he was fired for cause. And Josh Heupel was hired by AD Danny White. I think Josh Heupel has done a pretty good job. He's done a really good job with the culture off the field, in the locker room. And from an offensive standpoint, you can definitely tell a difference this season with him. What are your thoughts of Coach Heupel, just his demeanor, watching his press conferences, watching him on the field, Watching the program, in your view, what's your take on Josh Heupel? And it's something I've written about for the last couple of months, studying his background and really being familiar with Alabama's program before Saban when they got hammered with the NCAA probation. Dennis Francione hired away from TCU as Alabama's head coach in December 2000. And... After a season as head coach at Alabama, they got hammered by probation, something that could be very similar in Josh's situation at Tennessee and the element of unknown with the sanctions from the NCAA. That's looming, and Franchoni departed Alabama for A&M to be the head coach there. But I know that's a lot to throw at you, Ken, but just the overall, uh, from I guess from end to end there with, with Josh Heupel and the situation he's in. So let's step back for a minute here, Dan. Let's talk about Butch. Let's talk about Jeremy because I interacted with both of those guys. I connected with Butch when he was an analyst down at Alabama. And uh, near the end of his tenure, I had sent an email to John Curry when I'd watched Butch have what I thought was a kind of disastrous press conference. And I was trying to describe to Curry what I thought was going on with him and what I did, you know, blah, blah, blah. I never heard anything from it. But I told Butch about that. In, in, uh, in Tuscaloosa, and I actually pulled the email up on my computer and had it read it. And, and Butch always carried a notebook and a pen, and he was writing down all these things that he and I were talking about. My sense of Butch was he knew how to check off the boxes, but he did not grasp or does not grasp how to take all those boxes and assimilate them and organize them into a broad strategic plan. You know? Now, then I met Jeremy because I worked, I did the same work for Jeremy one year at Tennessee that I did for Alabama. <clears throat> uh, I, I thought, I don't know if you know the word hubris. It's a Greek word. The Greeks put the word together. They said, you know, when a, when a mortal starts to act like a God, the gods will come down and wreak havoc on their heads. 
And I thought Jeremy suffered from a little bit of that hubris. Um, you know, we saw how he talked about the fans early on in his tenure. You know, for instance, maybe comments that he shouldn't have made. And so then here comes Heifel. Now, Heifel, I don't know. Um, but other than Mel Tucker at Michigan State, I don't think there's any coach in the country that's done a more remarkable job in getting a program back on track than Heupel. Um, he, he he clearly has, has a way to connect with his players personally, or else they wouldn't be rallying and playing like they're playing, number one. Number two, he also has a clear sense, I don't know if he ever articulates it, of kind of what he wants this team to be and and what this offense is of his, because this offense works. And um, I know coaches don't believe in moral victories, but I believe in moral victories when you're rebuilding a company or when you're rebuilding a football team. Um, you know, the, the tangible victories, the big product sale or the big win over Alabama, those don't come very easily. But if you can get the psychology of the organization moving in the right direction and you have people bought in, like I think Heupel does, the product results are going to come. Um, and maybe they won't come this year. Maybe there won't be a whole lot of them next year. I don't, I don't know. But I'm on board with what Heupel is doing. And as far as your question or your comparison to Francione uh, and, and whether, you know, the, the school gets sanctions from the NCAA, and we can argue about whether or not the NCAA even has any teeth anymore. But I think that the number one thing that every organization has to do is hire good leaders, and I would say Tennessee has done that with Heupel. So therefore, there's two outcomes. Heupel keeps the program going the way that it's going. He's happy. He fights his way through the sanctions. And Danny White keeps him, and he, he becomes the coach for a long time. That's the best outcome for Tennessee. But the second outcome could be a decent one, too, which is Heupel uh, gets the program back on track gets it headed in the right direction, decides he doesn't want to fight through the sanctions. But now other coaches are going to look at that job and say, wow, Heupel did the dirty work of the cleanup, and that situation is a lot better, and we know what the sanctions are, and we know when they're going to come to an end. And I think the applicant pool that Danny White would have to choose from would be a lot greater than it was immediately post-Pruitt. So I think Heupel doing what he's doing sets Tennessee up for the chances of success either way. And with your experience in the college football world, talking to coaches, administrators, whoever, uh, have you ever dealt with Coach Whittingham at Utah or Lincoln Riley, head coach at Oklahoma? No, never have dealt with either one. Uh, you know, I don't pay much attention to the schools out west like Utah, honestly. I pay a lot of attention to Oklahoma just because they're a big name school, but also my son and his family live in Norman and my daughter-in-law works for OU and is an OU grad. So I pay a lot of attention for that reason. And now my attention goes up even more because they're coming into the SEC. Uh, but no, not Utah. And the reason I ask, obviously Josh Heupel has ties to the state of Utah playing at two schools there and winning a national championship for his third school he played for in 2000 at Oklahoma. So he's got a, a ton of connections really throughout the country now as he's kick-started this coaching profession. He spent a lot of time at Oklahoma as an assistant 
under Coach Stoops. He was co-OC for a number of years alongside Jay Norvell. And uh, I've, I've broken down that situation, why it ended like it did, bringing in Lincoln Riley for the OC replacement and eventually being head coach there for the Sooners. And it was just a situation to me, cooks in the kitchen and Stoops went the direction with Lincoln Riley. But I think it's neat to see people like Jay Norvell, who's had success as Nevada's head coach, and then obviously Josh Heupel moving on to Missouri as offense coordinator, quarterbacks coach, installing that Baylor-type offense, and then becoming UCF's head coach and now Tennessee. So I think Josh, whatever his situation may be, if NCAA sanctions are pretty rough at Tennessee's, he's got a lot of connections if stuff were to open up as far as any schools go. Well, let's think about it this way. Let's assume that we're going to have a 12-team playoff, and I think most people believe that. We just don't know exactly when. Then you could argue that going to a school like Utah and doing really well gives you a greater chance of getting in as one of the 12 than perhaps staying at Tennessee and fighting your way through the SEC does. But the reality is you go to Utah and get into the 12. Does anybody think you're going very far? You know, I I don't think so, because I don't think the school overall is going to be the magnet for the level of talent that a successful Tennessee program could be. And so when if if you just use as a barometer getting into the, the expanded playoffs, yeah, maybe Utah offers you a little bit more of a chance. But I can also turn it around and say, but look, what's the real upside? And the real upside is in the SEC, the the center of the college football universe is moving southwest and i'm sorry south and southeast into the sec certainly big 10 has has a big footprint here too but especially with clemson's downfall recently it's not the acc that big 12 is hardly a real league anymore in my opinion once oklahoma and texas leave and pac-12 Maybe if, if they make the right hire at USC, if Cristobal stays at Oregon, we'll see. And these these coaches, Dan, you know them better than I do. They're so darn competitive. And one of the marks of a competitor is they want to measure themselves against an external benchmark that is high and demanding. You know, and and I think Hypel has that in him. Well, do you really scratch that itch by going to a school like Utah? Or do you scratch that itch by staying at a school like Tennessee and competing against the best? You know, I, I don't know. I don't I don't know, Heupel. And, of course, we don't know what this, these NCAA sanctions might be either. So I think, do think it depends on what they are, what the severity is. But let's say it's a loss of five or six scholarships a year for a couple of years and the school pays some fine. Heupel might look at that and say, so what? That's, that's better than the situation again, Aaron, where he lost, what, 30 guys, 40 guys to the portal? So we'll see. Yeah, that is a great point. And I just bring that up just to show his connections and the question marks about the sanctions that could come. Uh, maybe it's not that severe. Maybe it is. And maybe it just turns into a situation. The only place he would ever leave is for his alma mater at Oklahoma if Lincoln Riley went to the NFL or they just decided to make a change and because Heifel's had so much success in a place like Tennessee. And then you bring up another great point about the competition, his level of being a competitor. And that that's definitely shown on and off the field 
for Heifel, whether it be game day, practices, or at press conferences. And you look at the SEC East, Georgia. Yeah, they're they're doing a tremendous job right now, recruiting, coaching, all that good stuff. And they may have a chance to win a national championship this year finally and get over that hump with Kirby Smart. But in the SEC East, you look at Dan Mullen in Florida. Florida enters this Georgia game this weekend in Jacksonville, 2-6 and six against Power 5 teams in his last eight games dating back to last year. Two wins, Tennessee this year and Vanderbilt this year. Losses, LSU, Alabama, Oklahoma, Alabama, Kentucky, and LSU. So Dan Mullen, on top of a show cause he has on the recruiting side of things currently, he's not beating Power 5 teams except for Vanderbilt and Tennessee and rebuilding under Josh Heupel. That that kind of may think, you know, Josh Heupel may think, you know, all I have to do is basically get through Georgia on the east side and get another opportunity possibly at Alabama and Atlanta. So that, that that's a selling point also. And, and remember, Dan, if we go to a 12-team playoff, you don't, you don't have to win the SEC championship and you don't have to be SEC champion to get in. You know, you have a 12-team playoff. It's easy to imagine a two-loss SEC team. Let's say, let's take Tennessee and let's say two, three years from now, 12-team playoff, they lose to Alabama and Georgia. Those are their losses. And they get, they're going to get into that 12. Well, who's going to have a better prospect of advancing them or Utah? who goes 10-2 and two against their competition or goes 11-1 and one against their competition. I think the smarter issue you, that you raised there is about Oklahoma. Oklahoma comes into the SEC. You know, every year it seems like Lincoln Riley gets talked about as one of the, you know, the young offensive wizards to go to the, to the NFL. That could be somebody where the lure of the alma mater and yet still staying in the SEC could be powerful enough to pull a successful Josh Heupel out of Tennessee. What is your take on Dan Mullen? Uh, I mentioned um, two and six, power yeah. five. What, what's your take on him? You know, I, I, I don't know Mullen, okay? So once again, I'm looking at people from afar, but Mullen's profile is one that I run into a lot in successful executives. And I describe it this way, Dan. There are people who are successful in spite of themselves, and there are people who are successful because of themselves. Those that are successful in spite of themselves have success that is limited. And I would give you an NFL example in comparison. Let's look at Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady. Um, Aaron Rodgers won one Super Bowl, I think about 10, 11 years ago. Many people consider him athletically to be a superior talent to Tom Brady. Um, but I think, but look how Rodgers spent his offseason last year. You know, might retire, might want to get traded, might sit out. All these very disruptive things that are not what a leader ought to be doing. When Brady left New England, there was no deal there. He talked to some teams, boom, went to Tampa Bay, won. So I think Aaron Rodgers won one Super Bowl in spite of himself. Brady has won six and is going to win more because of himself. I think Dan is a guy whose whose success is going to always be in spite of himself. He thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. Uh, If he were an athlete, I think we would say that he's a guy that does not take coaching well. Um, You know, because when you think you're the smartest guy in the room, you don't think you need to have that coaching. And, 
And so I personally would be surprised if he were to ever win a national championship. And I really think he's going to wind up in the NFL. I think he'd rather, you know, he doesn't have a great history as a recruiter. Maybe he just doesn't like it. Um, there's no question about how offensively skilled he is. Everybody says that. And that's the way everything's going these days. To me, he's going to wind up in the NFL two, three years from now. Maybe maybe he replaces Urban Meyer when Urban flames out of Jacksonville. How about that one, Dan? Uh, Mullen just moves from uh, Gainesville to Jacksonville. <laughs> Yeah, that would be something. And heck, if, if Florida opened up, who knows? Lane Kiffin could make a, another move within the Southeastern Conference. Of course, you got LSU open. We'll see what happens there. USC is already open as well. Texas Tech is open. Maybe they go after a Kendall Bryles, a, a Jeff Levy, Jeff Trailer at UTSA. So that's going to be interesting to watch Texas Tech of all programs right now. But on the way out, I guess, Lane Kiffin and LSU, Florida, like you said, could come open eventually. Is Kiffin a type to, to make another move within the conference? And what's your what's your opinion on his personality? Uh, Kiffin strikes me, and his history supports this, as a guy who's just inherently unstable. And I don't mean unstable psychologically. Okay, I'm not implying that. I'm not qualified to make that, that call. But just look at his tenure, you know, how it turned out at Tennessee, how it turned out at USC. You know, Saban fires him a week before the national championship game, you know, while he's down house hunting in Boca. And so whether he goes to LSU or or USC or anywhere, I can't imagine that Lane is going to spend the rest of his career or even 10 years at Ole Miss building a program. Uh, I think somewhere in him is this desire to sort of like ultimately overcome Saban. And I think the one job that if he were ever plant and stay for a long time would be if he could get Alabama. So, so my, my fun kind of hypothetical scenario is Lane gets the LSU job, wins the national championship, and then Saban retires, Lane jilts LSU and goes to Alabama because he ultimately wants to be the guy who sits in Nick Saban's chair. Now, whether he really gets the LSU job or not, I don't know. But if he keeps playing the way that he's playing now, uh, man, you, you have to give him a long, hard look, don't you? Yeah, you do. And do you think Alabama, the the, the boosters there, the internal factors that, that makes – the hiring and firing decisions, when, when that day comes when Saban does hang it up, do you think that school would actually give a lot of thought of, of hiring a guy at Lane Kiffin if he's the best candidate? Well, play the scenario out, Dan, if, if my hypothetical turns out. He has a great year this year at Ole Miss. He leaves Ole Miss, goes to LSU, pulls them out of the doldrums, wins a national championship builds all those recruiting relationships that are necessary to do that. Do you think Alabama is not going to want a guy? You get a double whammy, right? You take a championship coach away from a key competitor and you bring him into your school. I, you know, if that's five years from now, Kiffin might look like the fair haired boy and, and all those years of jumping around job to job by conveniently forgotten or ignored and why not why not take them Bama 
That's good stuff. Well, Ken, thank you for coming on. I appreciate you taking a few minutes here and just kind of talking about the landscape of college football and the coaches throughout college football in the Southeastern Conference. You bet, Dan. Good to talk to you. Enjoyed it.